Today's scripture comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the inspired words of God. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and of wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. So we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea. And they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmetheus. Oh, wait, no, that's Parmenas. Some other guy. And Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So you can imagine that when there were just 12 followers, when it was the 12 disciples and Jesus, it Everybody could fit into one room. Everybody could fit around one campfire. Everyone shared all the same experiences. They had all been there for that thing that happened or that thing that Jesus said. And then Jesus looks at his 11, because they're down to 11, in the beginning of the book of Acts and says, now I'm leaving and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we talked about how they watched him ascend to heaven and thought, no, 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 come back. But they did take those first faithful steps. They prayed together. They took the actions they could. They waited. The Holy Spirit came. And you guys, within 10 days of the start of the book of Acts, so 10 days, they are now at 2,000 people. Wow! Right? This is incredible. And then in another month, the book of Acts tells us there was, you know, that Peter heals this beggar and people begin to come and see the power of God at work. And now it's not 2,000, it's 5,000. And wow, I mean, people coming to know the saving power of Jesus Christ. And it's through ordinary people like you and me, the apostles, and the community is huge. Wow. Wow. It's glorious, but there's also problems. Think of it this way. Imagine we have about 600 people who call our church home right now. That's who we have right now. We worship in four services. There's one going on right now and two more this morning. But imagine that God said, Bee Creek, by Christmas, it's not going to be 600. It's going to be 5,000. You are going to reach 5,000 people, change 5,000 lives. We would say, yay, yay. Hallelujah. And then we would start to say, okay, but where are we going to put them? And when, when Christmas comes, who gets to sit in the sanctuary, right? I know you think this. And who has to sit in, you know, stadium seating in the sunrise room, watching on video? And then 
Who has to sit outside with their blankets and we're going to live stream it out there, right? And, and how, do, how do we do that? Where do we worship? You know, this is a tremendous, tremendous blessing, you guys. But the reality is that Luke tells us as the community grows, they have to face problems. And you heard the very first verse of chapter 6. As the community grew, there were rumblings of discontent. Yep, there were. Because here are all real people who have given their lives to Christ and been changed. But real people, when you have 5,000 real people in a room or in an area, there's going to be some conflict. It just happens. And the way that the conflict divided this church was around food. Food was a very immediate, very needy thing back then. Okay, so most of us think, what are we going to eat? Not, am I going to eat? They were thinking, am I going to eat? And the way that the generosity was lived out in the church is that those who had means, they sold things, houses and fields and farms and ancient holdings and got the money and gave it to the apostles who used it for food. And there should have been enough for everybody. But what's happening is part of the believing community is beginning to see that the train never reaches them. Okay? Imagine that you're that part. Okay? And the first time it happens, you think, well... It's okay, maybe the kids, maybe there's going to be food tomorrow. But then it keeps happening to one part of the community, the Greek-speaking community. And you can see this is a great injustice that as they look at the Hebrew, y'all are the Hebrew side, we'll talk about this in a minute. As they look at the Hebrew side, how are they going to feel? Well, they're going to start getting more and more angry. Now, this is an ancient fault line in the country. Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking. And we learned this when we were in Israel, something I had never seen before because I live here in the United States and I'm not Jewish, but our Jewish guide said to us while we were around the Sea of Galilee, have you ever wondered what it meant when Jesus crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee? All of us said, well, we've got that cross the lake. We live by a lake. We know you get a boat, you go to the other side of the lake, and that's crossing the lake. And Hanania said, I need you to realize there's so much more to it than that. Okay, there, that when you cross the Sea of Galilee, you not only were crossing a geographic boundary, but you were crossing a cultural one. But most of the towns on the Hebrew side of the lake, can I hear it for the Hebrew side of the lake? Woo! Y'all are rocking, okay? Don't feel bad about yourselves just for what you do later to those folks, okay? You're rocking it. You speak Hebrew. You, um, that's the language of the Bible, right? So gold star there. You maybe dress a little bit more traditional. Like you have beards. You're really into beards, guys. And women, you know, we're really into guys with beards. And they have four locks because that's what the Bible says. And you have tassels on your clothing. And you're really careful about kosher. You want to make sure that your milk things don't mix with the meat things. And you watch that because God says that's important. And on this side of the lake, all these, a lot of these towns have Hebrew names. I mean, this is Israel, right? So they're going to have Hebrew names. But... In this side of the, t- the um, lake, when we were there, we saw a lot of mikvahs. 
And you may not know what that is, but it's a place dug into the ground. It's an ancient spiritual bath kind of a place where rainwater had to flow in and fill the, the pool. And if you were feeling spiritually unclean, you could walk into those waters and submerse yourself and say the prayer, God, please make me clean. And when you came out on the other side, you would feel that spiritual cleansing. It's where the idea of baptism comes from. So you guys are rocking it because on the Hebrew side of the lake, you got mikvahs there. You're living the faith out, okay? And everyone can see it. It's very visible in the way you dress. But the other side, let's hear it for the other side. Y'all are the, they have a lot more enthusiasm than the Hebrew side. That's good because you speak Greek, okay? You are still believers. You are still faithful followers of God. You read your Torah. Uh, you believe. But you also realize even though Rome conquered you, there's some good things that come with that, right? Like aqueducts and running water, that kind of rocks. And you guys might not always wear the tassels or keep the forelocks because you dress a little bit more like the cosmopolitan folks in Rome. And instead of the mikvahs on your side, guess what's on your side of the lake? Really, we toured a town where there were blocks and blocks of spas. Hot spas and cold spas and steam rooms and relaxing rooms. Because on the Greek-speaking side of the lake, we enjoy the benefits of modern, you know, plumbing, right? And we can enjoy the physical getting clean. So we smell a lot better over here than they do. (laughs) So here's, you have your Greek-speaking believers and your Hebrew-speaking believers. All of you believers, right? Okay. All of you pretty excited about who you are, but there's divisions. You can imagine how the Hebrew, right, guys? We look at those guys and think, they've compromised, right? Look at them and their fancy little spas and things like that. True believers have the beards and the mikvahs, seriously, right? That's what we think. And we go over to this side of the lake, and what, what do we think about those guys? Kind of fuddy-duddies, right? Kind of. I mean, they're just a little too you know, sticks in the mud over there on that side. Now, one of the things that Hanania said is the Hebraic side is where Jesus spends most of his time in ministry. And when he crosses over to the Sea of Galilee to the other people, things get crazy. Because this is mostly the Hebraic people that he's ministering to. You go over to the Greek-speaking side of things, and when you see Jesus crossed over the lake, Hebrew-speaking people would have been ready for something nuts to happen, and it almost always does. So when Jesus crosses to the other side, the first person to meet him is a naked man who is possessed by demons and has broken his chains, right? All the Hebrew-speaking people are like, ah! Of course, you're on the wrong side. Get back, right? On the, on the Greek-speaking side of things, there's pigs that might run off of a cliff, And then the townspeople, instead of saying, thank you for saving that poor naked man from the demons, they would say, Jesus, this is a little too much for us. Could you please leave? Storms arise when Jesus is crossing from one side or the other. So there is this huge separation, this gulf, that even the Gospels persists. Then we get to the book of Acts. When Jesus says, Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Suddenly, there is this blanket invitation for everyone. 
the Holy Spirit allows followers to speak in other languages like Greek, and suddenly it's not just a really comfortable, really faithful group of everybody who's the same, speaking the same languages with the same customs and cultures and the same ways of living out the faith. Suddenly, it's this really broad group. No longer us and them, but we. And yes, hearts are transformed, but what we see is that the prejudiced, the prejudices, they persist. And so they still need to be overcome. And the way it comes out is the food, is that day after day, the widows, the very least of the Greek believers who had no spouse to support them, no father still alive to help, and this time, if you didn't have that man, then you couldn't earn a living They have no one to provide for their children. If they're Hebrew, they have enough food. If they're Greek, crumbs. Is this a problem? Is a problem. And so the Greek believers take it to the apostles. I'm sure that they said, I'm sorry, we have a problem. I'm sure you can resolve it. Do you think they did it like that? No, they said, can you believe what is happening, right? They, they are being so mean to us, legitimately so, right? The, work that, the word that Luke uses means not only complain, it means loudly complain, okay? So when the Greek believers take this problem to the apostles, they are angry. There's injustice, and they say, fix this for us. None of us have ever done that, right? never done that. Um, They complain, complain, complain. Now, the way that the apostles handle this complaint is beautiful. It's as beautiful a model then as it is today. What they do, they do several things well. They pray about it. They don't immediately reach a decision. See, they pray about it, and then they come back. And the first thing that these apostles do well is they manage monkeys well. Y'all ever heard of monkeys? The business world a couple of decades ago got into this idea that you have to manage the monkeys. And employees, a lot of times, will bring the boss, the CEO, the manager, every day, a new monkey. I'm having this problem. And you fix it, right? And the unwitting CEO trying to be a good leader would say, okay, I can, I can handle that. I have the skill set to handle that. And by the end of the day, the week, the month, the year, suddenly in their office, figuratively, are all of these monkeys. And they have become the manager of a zoo of problems instead of the leaders that look above it to where the organization is going. And so one of the things you'll hear in the business world is don't take other people's monkeys. Have you ever heard that? Maybe. Now you have. Well, the church comes in with, I would say, a gorilla. This gorilla could completely undermine the ministry and the witness of the church. If there are believers that get more food than others, this, the church will not last. It really will not. And so the Greek believers bring this giant gorilla, and they say to the apostles, you're, you know, you're the ones that Jesus chose. And we're not having this anymore, and fix it. And the apostles had to think at that moment, okay, what does God need me to do? Certainly they had the authority, they had the power to oversee food distribution. 
And throughout the Bible, we see people like Moses who are great leaders but overfunction in this area. You know, they try to do everything. It doesn't work. But the Holy Spirit helps the apostles see that this is not their monkey. And so the first thing they do is they say to the church, what God has called us to do within this community is to be leaders in prayer and preaching and teaching. And we cannot oversee food distribution. But they say, God has enabled you to do that. There are within your number people who can capably lead this and who can fix this great wrong. You together can do it. Now, we're going to come back to this, but I just personally, I have pondered this as a leader so deeply because it cannot have been easy for these apostles to give leadership away. And I know that because I'm the kind of person who likes control. Right, baby? I like control. (laughs) And so there's times when, you know, the way the chairs are, the fun chairs are set up, I really wanted to say in that. And where they, like that one over there, I wanted, nobody ever sits in it. Hi, Vic. You should sit in that chair because I wanted that there. And I I actually had an usher say, I'm going to set out the chairs. I said, great. You know, here's what I'm thinking. And I got back and, and it wasn't what I was thinking. And so I just kind of moved it to what I was thinking. And this person later came to me and said, it may not work if you have to do everything. And that's something within me. I'm so grateful for that person because then I started thinking, you know, we have a full campus and I want to think, okay, well, I bet I can get the schedule out and make sure that every group has time in the cabin that they most want. And then I might say, well, somebody else needs to lead that, but I'm going to pick the person. So I like control. And here the apostles are saying to their people, what God has called me to do, the apostles, is to preach and to teach and to lead. And there are some within you who have been called to oversee the food. And they don't say, and I think it's Sam and also Eddie, and I'm going to put Greg. You know, they don't pick. They tell the church, God has given you the ability, the wisdom, the knowledge to find the right people, and then they let it go. And the reason that I love being your pastor is because there are ushers and there are leaders of you who say, hey, Laura, you know, our church won't ever go anywhere if you try to control everything. And so we have Stephen Ministry leaders who, who lead dozens of people who provide care for you in times of need. And we have a hospital visitation team who many of you feel that calling. You say, that's, that's on me. I'm going to visit the sick. You do it one or two weeks a year. We, we have groups that go read at West Cypress Hills. We have Helping Hand Crisis Ministry. We have an entire Vista house on our property that we, we work through transitional housing. And you do it. None of these things are primarily me. Our mission trips, I bless them, I pray for them. But you guys, you, because you're passionate and you're called, we have four mission teams at the least every year. We have four. Two go to Guatemala to to help in an orphanage, and one goes to San Antonio, and one finds a disaster somewhere and rebuilds homes. And sometimes we send more. And there's a group of guys who got together and said, we need a chainsaw team. 
to help with emergency response so that the next time there's a disaster, we've got a group that's a chainsaw team. What do y'all think I know about that? Would it happen if I needed to lead the chainsaw team? You wouldn't want it, okay? You wouldn't want it. But because we're in community, just like the early church, there are things that all of us take leadership in. All of us. And Paul would say it like this. He'd say, there's one body, but many parts. And we function best when, we re- when I, as a leader, don't try to overfunction for you. I remember my calling, and we all remember our calling is not just to sit. It's to get up and do stuff, right, to answer the call to ministry in Christ. And so that's what I see about the messy, beautiful thing that is Christian community. So they say, church, you got this. Pick seven people. Seven people. And they don't just say, hey, go do this. They give them direction to their, to their people in solving this problem. They say, we're going to need seven people. Pick some people with three characteristics. Wise. That's in yourself, right? That's who you are as a person. Spirit-filled. That's who you are in relation to God. And well-respected by the community. And that's who you are in relation to other people. So they tell the church, if you can find a person who has that character in themselves, who has that relationship with God, and who has that relationship with other people, then the apostles say, I trust that you found the right person. And the community from both sides of the lake gets together to talk about this. Now you can imagine if there's seven people, what I would think would be there would be three from one side and three from the other, and they would fight about that seventh person, right? Because that's the swing vote in this food distribution thing. Here's where we see the apostles were so right to trust their people. Because their people picked seven people from the Greek side. Isn't that beautiful? That this community that's been hurt and torn apart in the Greek side feels the discrimination from the Hebrew-speaking side. That in this moment when trusted with the solution, getting together, the Hebrew-speaking side says, in this choice, we're sorry. We were really wrong. And we're trusting all of you, our brothers and sisters, to oversee everyone's food to make this right. It's beautiful. It gives me chills. Because you just don't see that except in Christian community. And what happens is even more wonderful. Luke says, and you're not hearing me wrong, as a result of this church fight, more people came to faith in Christ. You guys, when is the last time you've seen a church fight and thought, man, I, I need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I, I just, I want to get in on that. Um, because maybe we're not, We're not taking this seriously enough. This was a really sacrificial way that the church, not the leaders, the church came together with each other and took each other's hands and resolved the problem. And so people outside the church thought, wow, everybody fights. But we never see solutions like this. And it's at this point that Jewish rabbis, Luke says, start to join the church. They say, these Jewish rabbis, they have seen conflict, okay? I promise you, synagogues had conflict. And 
they look at the way the church has resolved their conflict and they believe that Jesus really is the Messiah because it's so different than anything they've ever seen, that their, their Messiah has to have come, and so they come, become followers of Christ. I mean, how many of us think about the way we disagree, the way we're in conflict as a witness to our faith? Usually it's something we try to hide. But friends, the call here is to learn a different way. To realize that we are all brothers and sisters, that as we grow, conflict is going to be natural. Is conflict natural in your marriages, with your children, with your in-laws? Yes. Yes. We don't need to be afraid of it. We simply need to turn it over to Christ and to realize there is something greater now than I win or you lose. It's our community here, whether that be in a family or that be in your neighborhood and your neighbors are always letting the dog poop on your lawn. Man, that's a justice issue right there. Or there's a cubicle, you know, that you don't like that person. They're always doing scuzzy business practices, but you don't. You keep yourself, you know, pure, and they call themselves a Christian. These are chances for us to model a different kind of living. We say that we're changing the world together. If you're like me, you often think that means when we go outside. And what Luke is reminding us is the world begins to change together by the fabric of our community, of our love for one another and our ability to resolve our issues with each other. It changes here, and then we take the change out there. It changes here. And then we take that change out there. Let's pray. Jesus, who calls us to love each other, you know that even from the beginning, there were conflicts. And that this early conflict, this was a real injustice. Really hurt feelings and bad behavior. And yet, Lord, you used it for your good. And our church continued to grow, and it has continued to grow for 2,000 years. So, God, we, we pray and we ask that you would help us when we're in conflict. In conflict when our families, in conflict in our neighborhoods, or in conflict in our business world, wherever it may be, with our friends. Especially believers, Lord, help us to look to our own hearts, to look to the heart of the, the believer that we're in conflict with and to reach for their hand. And Holy Spirit, may you be the third person in that mix. May you be giving us wisdom beyond what we have. And may the fabric of our community, of our families, of our workspaces and our neighborhoods become a great witness to your power. Your power in bringing people who are different together. We ask this in your mighty name. Amen.